Justice Tech Pros here. Today's episode is going to be another expert um, episode where we're going to have two featured guests on. We're going to have returning guest Andrew Garrett from Garrett mm-hmm. Discovery, and we're going to have uh, Patrick Eller from Metadata Forensics. And the topic for today is going to be law enforcement bias in forensic tools. So it's going to be a, another interesting episode, should be very informative for the listeners. And I also am I'm looking forward to it, really dissecting this uh, area and this topic and really uh, explain what goes on, have the public have a little bit of insight onto how these various tools are used mm-hmm. by law enforcement and how they can be uh, biased in using those tools. So we're going to welcome both guests. Okay, I'm pleased to have on uh, guest Patrick Eller and repeat guest Andrew Garrett. So I would just uh, welcome, gentlemen. Good afternoon. And uh, Andrew, just for those who uh, haven't uh, listened to the prior episode, if you could just maybe give a little background, a little information about your company. Sure. This is uh, Andrew Garrett. I am the CEO of Garrett Discovery. We are a nationwide computer forensic e-discovery, audio, video, computers, everything digital, uh, forensic firm. We testify in court cases around the world, and most of our cases in the, are in the United States, but some of them are in South America, Canada, and Europe, and North Africa. Um, we testified in a lot of major trials. On an average, um, most of our experts work on anywhere between 100 to 200 cases a year, and um, I've testified through oral deposition, transcript, report um, over 215 times now. Lots of experience, and I'm here with uh, one of my colleagues and good friends, Patrick Eller. Go ahead, Patrick. Hey, thanks, Andrew. Hey, so yeah, I'm Patrick Eller. I'm the CEO of Metadata Forensics, uh, based in Richmond, Virginia. Um, We provide services in mobile device forensics, vehicle data examinations, uh, computer forensics, social media, cloud data, data recovery, expert testimony, I've been doing digital forensics for 15 years. I was previously federal law enforcement for 20 years. Um, So we do cases uh, all around the world, um, international. I have a couple of those going on right now. Uh, We do a lot of local cases, criminal, corporate, civil, uh, you name it. If it uh, holds data, we will uh, attack, uh, attack it and retrieve data from it. Excellent. And it's a pleasure having you both on. I mean, um, even the last episode, Andrew, you and I did, it was a lot of good information and I actually received a lot of positive feedback uh, via email where uh, people just really don't even know that these things exist. You know, it went back to what we were discussing, how they always just see one side of it and they, and they swear that those things are, play out exactly and whatever claims are made by, you know, the prosecution are 100% accurate. So it was really eye-opening, and I got a lot of good feedback and a lot of uh, great emails, just really thanking for the information, thanking for the uh, episode. So it's it's great to see that because that's really the goal. That's why I almost started this thing as a side project, just to give insight to listeners and to those out there and potential jurors of what really goes on. Thank you very much. I'd, I'd have to say, I think Pat, I could speak for Patrick in this too. If we could only go back in time and 
rattle the cage of a few judges that, that made bad decisions based on bad data. We, we could, but we don't have that power. So the power of what we do have is to educate, right, and educate those that don't know what, uh, what this data is, how to use it, how to put it into context. And in doing so, hopefully, we'll change the landscape and uh, at least balance the scales of justice. Yeah, I agree. I think that's really the only shot there is. You know, like I try to explain in the episodes is the, the power really is, even though the judge has the power, the prosecution, the government and all that, the power is really in the people. So if they just have a better understanding when they go into that courtroom and they're sitting on the jury and they're sitting in the jury box, if they have a better understanding and they know what to look for, it's really just going to help enhance someone's ability to get a fair trial, you know, and not to have things one-sided because they'll have a, get a, a greater grasp of what really takes place. I agree. You know, it's, uh, it, it sometimes is disheartening to see, you know, uninformed decisions being made and hopefully somebody will get something from this and it'll all be worthwhile. Yeah, and, and I figured today, I know we were talking about um, the bias with the forensic tools, so I was hoping maybe you guys could elaborate. And, and before we segue into that, just one thing I wanted to touch on, you know, when we were taught, when uh, we discussed our episode on actually on, uh, on, on social media, I noticed there was a little bit of pushback. Do you guys get that sometimes where you'll get opposition trying to jump in and trying to say, no, this is wrong, and, that, and then you almost have to fight to prove your case? Do you get that often? Patrick, you're up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I I think I might have missed that question. Well, I was well, just let me, let me something to, going on here. Try to help. He's asking if we got pushback. If we ever if we ever receive kind of some friction from, from every day either law enforcement. It, it I agree. It's an ongoing battle. I mean, it, it it makes no sense because we work in the world of science. There's no there should be no pushback. The pushbacks should be your report and in court and the the arguments that are put forward and the differences between examiners results and the science behind that there shouldn't be a culture in this great divide in our industry unfortunately we're, that's what we have today so yeah i mean it's been an ongoing battle that uh, you know i've been i guess pushing for the last uh few weeks or so even on social media platforms on twitter on linkedin and i i'm getting some feedback and some people agree that no there you know there shouldn't be bias we're talking about science but yet it still exists you know i shouldn't have to go to a judge and get a judge's order to be able to look at something that was made with a forensic tool that I should be able to look at in defense of a client. I shouldn't have to have the judge order law enforcement to provide that to me. It should already be part of discovery, but they play by different rules. And, and I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, that's what's amazing to me. I mean, even when, um, you know, the little interaction we had on, on LinkedIn, when you see the pushback, and as you said, Andrew, this is a science. There really shouldn't be pushback. If somebody has different re results, you would figure one would want to explore those results and not right away jump the gun and say, no, that's 100% wrong. Uh, you would figure somebody would want to analyze it and look at it logically and understand why it could be wrong as opposed to just assuming it's wrong without even listening to the other side of the argument. And that's what I see play out 
so often in the courtroom where they get in there and they're very matter of fact about the defendants, about the data, about, you know, the backup to it, about the quote unquote science behind it. And if there's no opposition, that's it. It's ironclad. And that's what's so disturbing. Yeah, I, I kind of have a, a, a little bit of a jaded view in a way. And let me explain. I think there's such a, a big divide in computer, digital forensics, let's just say all genres of digital forensics, um, because we are a baby new science, right? We, we don't have um, standards and regulation, and the pushback we're getting is the senseless stuff. And let me give you an idea. Like, um, you go to Texas, right? And a forensic expert, I can testify on behalf of my client. I could go to 50 schools. I could get certifications. I could prove myself to the industry. I can have courts in 12 states say I'm an expert and I've been certified as an expert, I think, in 20-some states. But at the end of the day, I go to Texas, and they go, you have to have a PI license, private investigator license. Well, the reasoning behind that is real simple. You have law enforcement that now uh, – one of the requirements to become a PI is either your former law enforcement or you go work for a PI firm for three years. You go before a board. You take a test, and then you buy a bunch of insurance and stuff like that. So why would I want to go work for a PI firm that traditionally doesn't do digital forensics for three years and then start doing digital forensics to represent a client? How, how is that, that career path helping a client more than somebody that's got the educational experience and the court says, yes, they're an expert because they go before the court and the court decides who's an expert, not, not the state regulators. But that's, that's really pushback of the industry of what's happened is, is you have formal law enforcement that says, we want to make the science exclusive to us. Even when we're not, well, no longer wearing a badge, we want to get a private investigator license. And by getting a PI license, now the science is still exclusive to us and only us because nobody else could possibly tell the truth unless you're wearing a law enforcement badge. Well, that's not really true. I hear this all the time of, I, I, and I do, I hear this all the time, like, there's only one, there's really only one truth, right? Well, if there's one truth, why do we have such a great divide in our industry? Because we're a baby new industry. And here's the way I, I, I view it, is not everything we do is science. No, not I was just going to say that. And that's a problem. So you have, you have things being injected into court that are not sciences. It's just, there's no foundational basis for any of it whatsoever. The opinions are unsupported, but it's something that somebody somewhere has convinced a lot of people to use it, to go forward with it so much that there's even training schools and certifications for the thing, the one thing they're going to court to talk about. And that's one of the things we talked about in the last podcast was called detail records and the foundation for called detail records is a junk science because they're basing it off of basically a brochure right. off of information that is used in an FCC application prior to the tower being built. Therefore it has no scientific basis whatsoever and the court should throw it all out. You know why the court should throw it all out? Because eventually that will force law enforcement to do something like buy a JDSU unit, buy a BTS tracker, actually get out of the desk, go to the field, test the stuff, come back with test data, which is scientific, and use that data in their case. But that is not the easy button that everybody's looking for. Is you might have saw in the Fox News article a week and a half ago, um, we had the we had the opportunity to educate uh, Fox News reporter 
about the situation with Bill Barr and that iPhone and his pushback on Apple to try to get them to provide an easy button. The answer is not always an easy button. But that's what you get in a baby new industry is we're looking for easy buttons. Yeah, I think, you know, when you go back to that Apple article, I think uh, Tim Cook uh, from Apple said the best, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but we're not in the business of making back doors only for the good guys. Right. Um, and that's what he says. But the, the point behind that is, is, you know, how are we providing the best possible justice scenario in any of these cases when the difference with digital forensics is it's, it's just as much skill and training as it is science. Sometimes I feel like they don't want to turn things over or allow us to see things because they're afraid of what we're going to find that they didn't do. Oh, that, that's and, 100%. And I, and, and I really believe that. Um, I, I've had that happen recently in quite a few cases where examiners said they did something, but when we got to look at the full data set, we found out they didn't. They got questioned, then they admitted they didn't do it. And I think that it's so overwhelming. The field of digital forensics is so overwhelming. The amount of cases is so overwhelming that they're taking a lot of acceptable risk and they're hiding behind things that they don't want to turn over because of that acceptable risk. Well, I think the problem is also that a lot of the defense team, unfortunately, they don't know to go down that route. So they're not questioned on it. They're not questioning, you know, the government. They're not questioning the state. So I'm sure they get away with it a lot of a lot of the time. And that's the frustration I see, even if, you know, if we're on cases yeah. with, with co-defendants and I'll see the other defense team not doing certain things and not calling certain experts. It's very frustrating because... You know, it's almost like, I don't know, the way I see it, what does the government really have to lose? What does the state have to lose? Andrew and I have been talking about this a lot lately, actually, um, yeah. about how to get after training uh, uh, public defenders and get after training defense uh, attorneys on all things digital forensics. Because it's so broad and it's so large to the point of I was recently involved in a case uh, without details of it but law enforcement was trying to place someone at the scene of a crime and they couldn't do it and uh the the attorney reached out to me because he felt that their exam probably wasn't thorough and he was scared to put the guy on the stand and so within 15 minutes of looking at device i placed the device at the crime scene at the time and that information alone allowed the attorney to know Hey, I probably should not put this guy on the stand and allow him to perjure himself. But he might have done that without that information. It's something they should have found and they didn't. So if we're not looking at it from both sides, how is it justice? How if we are not being able to to have access to the same tools that they're using in the case for us to validate their findings, as we will get into some of these specific tools, I'm sure, here shortly, uh, if we can't validate their findings, then that tool has no business being used in the court of law to decide whether someone uh, is guilty of a crime or not. Great, great point. And, it, you know, Patrick and I have been having these long, lengthy discussions about this and, like, wh where's the industry going and how, how are we going to handle this in the future? And there's been this greater divide and greater divide. And let me give you a good case in point to kind of, to kind of, because we all need, you know, a thread to pull on a reference point. 
So if we look back into Operation Pacifier, one of the largest operations ever known for child porn detection, okay, you have a couple of FBI agents down in Quantico who um, ended up getting transferred down to Columbia, I mean, down, down South America, back and forth, and there's some juggling and stuff, and the software went around with them. Well, basically, they ended up buying the software tool from the hacking team. This is, uh, if you even Google the hacking team, you'll see, yes, that's the company that sold the government, all, many, many governments around the world, this nasty little tool set that let, it, let them do a lot of things, including violate people's Fourth Amendment rights, okay? Gotcha. So that same group of individuals ended up using a tool to detect somebody that was running a child pornography server, okay? And they ended up saying, well, okay, we need to back up back up really far and start over. And they brought in a university and this university created a tool set that allowed them to monitor peer-to-peer um, communication involving files that were known to them as containing um, child pornography. Okay. And in doing so, they started prosecuting a bunch of cases. The problem is now you have a couple experts down in Quantico that have to fly everywhere in the United States every day. So instead, they said, let's decentralize this. Let's send every law enforcement center in the United States a copy of the software if they join our pseudo-club, Internet Crimes Against Children. It's created a club, basically, at first. And now it's an organization that's funded through the Attorney General's office, and they get lots of federal money. So they join, they join ICAC, they get this software, and they get a day and a half of training. Now they're clicking on some buttons on some really highly technical, complex things happen in the software. Lots of things they don't understand. They just know at the end of the day, it tells them an IP address, and it tells them some files that were downloaded by an individual. <laughs> but now you've got a problem. You have 6,200 pretty much untrained law enforcement officers running a tool that, they, that the majority of them, I've... I've experienced maybe one in my lifetime that actually knew what was going on behind the scenes of that software. They're relying on a tool. But in every single case, they tell the defense expert, I'm sorry, you're not an expert. You can't testify in this case, and that's their argument, because you haven't been trained on our tool. But our tool is only available to law enforcement and only available to the law enforcement that's part of ICAC, part of an exclusive club underneath a huge agreement and nobody else can look at it. And how dare the court let anybody look at it because it's considered um, law enforcement sensitive, protected. Incredible. But you know what? It, well, this is what happens. I get a case like I had in Rockford, Illinois, where I simply tell the court it's not law enforcement sensitive. Take a look at the training manual. They copyrighted it. How can you copyright something that's law enforcement sensitive? Where's the Department of Justice classification of this? Where's the secrets in it? There's nothing secret in the books on how to use the software. It tells you what buttons to click. But I have a book is, in front of me right now. Yeah, what, <laughs> we all have it now. But the, the, the interesting thing is, is the exclusivity to the software doesn't have to do with what the software does. It has to do with robbing the defendant of justice, of them being able to defend themselves when they're falsely accused by a piece of software that their defense expert can't even analyze. And get this, in the DOJ, 
often says they're not even allowed to say the name of the piece of software in court because it's so super secret, nobody can know what torrential downpour receptor is. <laughs> we hear this over and over again. And once in a while, we don't get me wrong, once in a while you get a prosecutor that says, I don't care, here, take a look at it, you can come to my office and examine it. Of course. And that's pretty rare. That's, that's like the, the one in the 1,000. Usually there's an entire battle that your, your client has to spend $10,000 arguing with the government just to get access to the very materials that they're using to prosecute them with. Yeah, and see, and that's what's concerning. I mean, where, and that's where, you know, I, I lose a little faith in the actual judges because the judge, you know, has the power to stop that and to make things as fair as possible. And when you see them taking a back seat, it really makes you question certain things. I mean, in the last case I was on, you know, when you, when you see certain uh, rulings that aren't <clears throat> really going by what's fair for one side's fair for the other, and it's almost blatant that something, you know, is just that they don't want the defendant having a fair trial. It's very concerning, you know, and that's that's the problem that I don't know how to solve that problem outside of, you know, trying to educate, trying to put the power back into the jurors, trying to educate lawyers, you know, trying to educate the defense. I, it's it's going to be very hard to change that whole dynamic it really is, because when there's agendas at play and you have personalities that just want to win at all costs and they don't care about what the truth is they don't care about justice that's a big problem big problem it is and patrick tell tell everybody about your favorite tool in the world greggy <laughs> so let's 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 i think i think it's good to show like there's a tool right and tell us a little bit about first of all tell me a little bit about what greggy does so greggy greggy is the tool that uh allows law enforcement to bypass uh, passcodes in iPhones and iPads. Uh, Without knowing the passcode, they can brute force their way in using this tool or it will bypass the facial recognition or the biometrics, thumbprint, uh, whatever it may be. Um, It allows you to gain access to devices when you weren't given proper access. Now, what's interesting about that tool is it also did uh, full file system extractions of a iDevice, uh, which we, uh, not being law enforcement, did not have access to until recently through another tool. Uh, but they were being given the opportunity to gather so much information using this law enforcement only uh, Apple encryption bypass tool um but they weren't always using it and so one experience i had was they were not using it in a case and it has the ability to recover so much data that you are not recovering now it has the ability to recover snapchat data other social media data and what it does is it provides you the best data set possible in an investigation, why would you not want that? For both sides, why would you not want that? However, they're not using it on every device. They're not using it in every case. And so if your case needed that data, they didn't use it, you'd have to get the attorney to go get the judge to order them to make an image using that tool in order for it to be turned over for you to find the exculpatory information that you're claiming is actually in that device that they're not extracting with their law enforcement only tool. 
So and the scary you, part is you're not even out. guaranteed that the judge will even issue that order. That's the scary no, part. No, not at all. No, no, it's rare. And, and let me give you let me give you an example. So, Patrick, you're telling me if I if I have a defendant, right? Let's say I'm playing Mr. Attorney today, and I have a defendant, and he's being charged with something, and the evidence that they turn over is what they call a logical image of a phone. Sure. But you're telling me that they may have created a physical image, full file system, and they're not turning it over because they deem that image as law enforcement only. Yes. Well, I'll, so, I'll, no, no, I'll do you one. Clear here. You're, you're, you're talking about they're turning you over part of the evidence, not all the evidence, because they have more. Because they, they never my, – well, my understanding is they never let you touch the real evidence. They always tell you we'll make a copy of it and give you an yeah. exact copy of it, which is not actually true because there's no such thing as an exact copy. But, not they give you the best, but the best copy they can make yeah. is using like a gray key tool. And, but so they're what, giving you a lower quality one that has right. less data. Correct. And they have the capability. That's the thing. They're the only ones with that capability up until recently to get that data set, but they would not always capture it. They would not always provide it when they have the ability to do it. And what's weird is it's your client's device. If you're from defense, it's your client's device. And they won't give you the full access to your own client's device. And there's a lot of problems with that. I mean, even just on the basis of rules of discovery, you know, they're supposed yeah. to give they're supposed to give that, but yet they don't, and that's okay. I mean, it's it's a problem. Well, and here here's another thing that that has been happening, uh, and this scares me a lot too, because again, we go back to uh, defense attorneys' lack of knowledge. So they're actually now making these custom uh, extractions where they will make the full extraction, only select what they want, and then create that as a UFED extraction report, UFED standing for Universal Forensic Extraction Device, but they're making a custom report from that, and that's all they're providing. So they're they're making custom content extractions from these devices and that's all that they are capturing and providing even though they had the ability to have all the data on the device that is what they're not choosing to capture so for instance, so basically they, they're they picking capture, and choosing so i i think what we're talking about is like if they captured if they provide certain data and they leave behind the GPS data, you could have possibly shown your client was 25 miles from the crime scene. Yeah. Or at the crime scene. Yeah. That knife cuts both ways. Right. Of right. But the answer yeah, is, but it does. if you're looking for the truth, it doesn't matter. You need all the data. Correct. And it handed. just goes back to what we were saying even on the other podcast, Andrew. It's not about just getting data that's good for one side. You're just trying to expose everything, everything there is, all the information there is. And then it's up to the defense to use it how they want. It's up to the prosecutor, or prosecution to use it how they want. But that's the problem. They're picking and choosing. That's the problem. Absolutely. You have no choice. As a forensic expert, then I think the misnomer is that you can put me on the witness stand and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vigorously defend my client. That is wrong. We are scientists. We get on the witness stand. If you ask us something that's going to hurt our client, we have to answer. We don't get a choice. We don't get to, we don't get to pick and choose and play dumb and quiet and not say anything. If you if I've seen the entire device, let's say for instance, and this happened, this has happened. They go, Mr. Garrett, 
You've seen you've seen all the files on the computer. How many files do you think are pornography? Give us an <laughs> estimate. And I go, twenty five thousand, sir. But my client doesn't want me saying that. I have no choice. I've seen it. I can't undo it. Yep. But if I haven't seen it, I can't testify it about it. But what's really bad is if the other party has seen it and doesn't want to testify about it and keeps you from seeing it. That's oh, when, when they won't even put their examiner on the stand, you mean? <laughs> I'm just saying, because I've had that multiple times where I look at the information and I say, well, this doesn't make any sense what's in their report. And then they say, our examiner is not going to be testifying on behalf of the prosecution or, or we're not going to introduce them as an expert witness to, so that they can give their opinion that you can only ask them fact questions. So, and I've had that happen multiple times because of things just like this. I had an examiner recently tell me it's not my job to look for exculpatory information for the defense. Just to, let that sink in for in a second. Truth. Where's the truth in any of that? If you're only, it's kind of like it's kind of like getting a search warrant to look through the entire house and choosing only to look in the living room because you know what's up in the bedroom is going to help the client. And and that's the problem because the ex the supposed ex, the supposed experts aren't supposed to take that position where they're not going to do things that help. They they have to give things that help or hurt on either side of the coin. You, you know, science is science, as you guys are saying, and you just don't see it play out that way. And that's what's so disturbing. It just does not play out that way in reality. But here's the deal: you you can't possibly go through every piece of evidence of every detail of everything. You can't. Nope. But there's a difference between blind, blind ignorance, right? I don't want to look at it because I don't. I know what's in it may exonerate this person, right? Or it may lead me down a different path. You do the best job you can, but when you're when you're limiting what you're seeing, for instance, let's say I come to a crime scene. Let's take this as DNA, blood, bullets, trajectory, and I walk up with one eye patch on. And I only look to the west, and I don't care about the south or east. What good am I doing? How good of an investigator am I? I'm not. I am. I am. I am biased at that point. I, I am completely biased. I can you, you can. We cannot operate in the world of where investigators come in with bias. Of the person is here. They're at the crime scene. They got a gun in their hand. They must have been the person that did it. It couldn't have possibly been the neighbor two doors over that came, defused the situation, and the actual suspects are gone and ran, right? No, couldn't possibly be. But the understanding is, and don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to be harsh on law enforcement. I love law enforcement. They have a me hard too. job. They do have a tough job. I believe in everything they do. But what I'm a more firm believer in is we have to get back to the world of doing science, right. not fairy tales, not made up, made up junk in court, not anything. We need to break it down to science. And you have this battle going on. Don't get me wrong. The industry has a battle. You have academia saying you need a PhD to do this. You have law enforcement saying if you don't have a certification, you must not be an expert. And if you don't have a certification from law enforcement, you must not be an expert. And then you've got private industry of the software manufacturers saying you have to have our certification. But to be honest, all those certifications are how to push a button in a tool. It's not the science behind it. The science behind it goes much deeper. And unfortunately, there isn't a lot of colleges pumping out people with computer forensic degrees. They're all, there's a few that are doing a really good job. 
George Mason University is a great, phenomenal institute that's pumping out true experts right out of right out of the gate. But there's others that are dabbling in it, and they're kind of dabbling in for the cybersecurity side, internal investigation, incident response stuff. And it's not really made for court. The, there's only one person that decides whether somebody's an expert or not, and that is that judge. That's right. But the judge, judge cannot come in being convinced by the prosecutor that every single person that walks through that door has to have a law enforcement-only certification because that's biased. That is not the way to do this. Plus, also, a lot of the law enforcement schools, unfortunately, there's a lot of things that are being taught that are just incorrect. They're incorrect science. So back real quick, too. We were talking about the available data, right? I'm going to give you an example because I just ran a phone this morning. And this is an iPhone 7. And I ran it using the method that we, non-law enforcement, had previously before a new uh, exploit came out that allowed us to get full file system. So here's the difference. The prior system, when we would run an extraction of that phone, so this is a 64 gig Apple iPhone. I got 25 gigs of data, 25 gigabytes of data from the first extraction. Now, using the full file system extraction, which is the type of extraction that you would get from gray key, or you uh, fed premium services that they were offering. Before we had this ability to get this extraction, the, the new extraction, yep, the law enforcement services had the ability to get double the data, 50 gigs of data from the same phone. Wow. So I could only retrieve half the amount of data, and I have it right here on my screen right now, one extraction provided 25 gigs of data from the phone. The other type of extraction, 50 gigs of data, double. But now how is that, you know, how is that resolved, Patrick? I mean, is there something on the private sector that can match that? Or, or it's just, it's something that cannot be obtained on the private sector? So, so now there is. And so that's how I was able to run it this morning. So uh, there was an exploit that was developed, uh, check rain and check mate is what they're called for Apple devices, iPhone seven through 10 or iPhone five through 10 with uh, certain chipsets. And now Celebrite, and, and I love them because they actually are providing this tool inside of their tool, uh, inside the universal forensic extraction device has made it where we can extract that same level of data now if we have their tool, which is available to us on the civil side. And now how far of a gap time-wise would you say uh, it was prior, whereas law enforcement only had the tool, to now where two, it is available? Two years. So all well, think about well, all those cases honest, in the at least, at least two years. Right. At least two years. That tool was not developed by them. It was some hacker on the web, and when I say hacker, not like a malicious hacker, I'm talking about a guy that just does security research, okay? Some hacker on the web dumped it out on the web for free. Anybody could download it. You didn't have to have a forensic tool. So, of course, the forensic tool that cost you 20 grand, you know, 15, 20 grand, they, if they can't do it in their tool, it diminishes the value of their tool. So they were almost forced, to, forced into the situation where they had to just adopt that hack into their tool. 
Otherwise, people would go to somebody else's tool. Um, another forensic vendor may put it in their tool, and it may give somebody a reason to change tools, right? Yeah. So you get this really expensive tool. So if the whole thing wasn't it wasn't for the community. It was no. it was because they didn't want to lose market share. I mean, that's that's at least my take on it. Uh, um, and I agree. I think the other tools are going to implement it as well. Sure, they and, they, and they started to already. Some of, some of the others already put it out. And the first thing most of them did was put it on their website to download and said, here it is. But basically yep. it's an exploit, and it was just an accident, okay? Nobody had it on some game plan to say, let's build this for oh, no, law not enforcement. All. If law enforcement could have, I imagine they would want to keep, wanted to keep that exclusive to them for the rest of <laughs> history. Sure. Right. But somebody said, well, we figured out how to break in. Let's just give it out to everybody. But imagine if that happened over and over and over again across all different types of phones and stuff, you would diminish the the value of even having these really expensive tools, and it would diminish law enforcement's exclusivity of those tools. Because I have heard from three vendors now, I'm not going to name names because the, this is not the time or day to do that, and I've had the discussions with the, some of the top brass at DOJ about this. I've got the vendors that said, Law enforcement threatened to pull our contracts if we sell to non-law enforcement. And I have the DOJ saying there's no such, there's no way that is happening. Huh. And I have recently married those people together, and the DOJ has now came, the senior leadership DOJ has now figured out that that's exactly what's happening. Somebody in law enforcement is overstepping their authority by telling a vendor that they can only build tools for law enforcement, and if they sell the yeah. same tool to non-law enforcement, they can pull their contract. They don't even have the authority to do something like that. Nobody at DOJ does. It actually violates some laws by saying that whatsoever. So those individuals, if you do hear this podcast, please don't say that anymore. Those days are over. That needs to stop. Now, I understand the business model because when you take a look at companies like Cellbrite, I love Cellbrite. They've got great advantage in the marketplace. It's a great tool. They've got a lot of history of loading phones. I, I've known about Cellbrite and worked with them back in the days of Brightpoint and Brightstar, um, which are cell phone distribution centers in the United States. Did work with them back in the day. So I know all, uh, Cellbrite's, Cellbrite's got its place in the market, and they do a really good job at that. But the majority of Cellbrite employees that do training in the field and doing sales are either former law enforcement or current law enforcement that are taking time off work because their command lets them to go teach a class and to get paid to teach that class somewhere else because they're teaching it to only law enforcement. A lot of their classes are only law enforcement. Other forensic vendors teach only law enforcement classes. And there's lots of tools in the marketplace that are law enforcement only and they will not sell to you being non-law enforcement. But I can tell you, there are some examiners in this world Patrick and I are some of them that are at the top of our game and they give us access to some of these tools. They do that because they see value in our feedback. So law enforcement thinks they have an exclusivity over some of these tools. I can tell you they don't, <laughs> but it is the majority of it is an exclusive relationship, but there are those exceptions out there. Um, I see. But I, I'm sure Patrick runs into the same thing. I'm sure you run into the same thing where it's, it's, uh, it's a law enforcement only club sometimes when it comes to tools and conferences and information and separate everything. There's I was actually I, our industry. I was actually going to ask you that when you guys go to different you know uh, conferences or conventions, do, do you feel that divide when you're in there with other vendors and other service providers? Do you feel that divide based on who's really with the law enforcement side and who's with the private side? From 
other attendees, I feel a great divide. As I had one time, I, I was at a magnet forensics conference, and a girl walked up to me, and she goes, I absolutely hate your gut, but I love you too. And I was like, what are you talking about, right? And I'm like, look at this person. I don't even know who she is. She goes, I want to hate you because you do criminal defense work. And I love you because what you've written is accurate and good work, and it helps the community out. And I says, I says what I don't get about that is we are supposed to be rooted in science. It doesn't matter whether we say the guy's guilty or innocent. It is science that we represent, not the party. Right. So there's a big misconception because I'm hired by a prosecutor or I'm hired by a defense team. It makes no difference because I'm analyzing data, I'm writing an opinion, and I'm injecting that into court. And I can be challenged by the system, or I can be challenged challenged by the system as a whole, or I can be challenged by some other expert that says, no, I'm incorrect. That is the entire process. There is a science behind it. But there's the stigma of if you go to the dark side, as they say, you're doing an injustice. But I can tell you this. You can't walk into a DNA lab in America and say, guess what? You process for the defense. You process for the prosecution. But if they send you something and you say it's not the right person, they're going to come here and be mad at you. No, it's a science. It's a positive or negative result. It doesn't matter. It does matter to the defendant or the prosecution, right? In their case, it does. But I, I wouldn't think that any prosecutor would want to go to court and put an innocent person in jail. Well, that's what's so disturbing. I mean, and that's why, you know, it, it goes back to what we touched on earlier. None of us have anything against law enforcement, about against the government, against the prosecutor. It's an individual basis. I have a problem when you're dealing with an individual, regardless of what side they're on, who just lacks integrity and almost is blinded by their agenda, where they're not looking at the information. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, let's say you're prosecuting somebody and somebody uh, like you comes in and you explain the information and you're showing that, you know, they may not be as accurate in their theory as they thought. If you have somebody with a little bit of integrity and a little bit of morals, they'll take a step back and acknowledge that. But when you have somebody who's blinded and is so, uh, you know, uh, trying to pretty much just get that conviction, they'll almost ignore it and bypass it as if they didn't even hear it. And that's the problem I have. I mean, if you, you know, do your job that, you know, we may be on different sides of the law. I may be on the defense side, but as long as you're playing by the same rules I am, there's no problem. I mean, you know, it's just the way life works. But when you see these agendas and you see these, uh, you know, shortcuts taken, you see almost vendettas taking place. That's where it gets very scary because it shows if they're targeting somebody, all bets are off, and they'll do whatever they have to do to get that conviction. And there's definitely vendettas. Um, I know a national expert. I'm not going to name names, but um, somebody decided to do a two-month investigation into this person and uh, ended up using a DOJ office to do so, and they went back, interviewed by my sources, interviewed high school principals, relatives, anything to find anything on her so the next time she testified they could use it and try to dauber her <laughs> and that is horrible to think that you can make yourself an enemy of the science there's no such thing the enemy of the prosecutor maybe but not, the science should be pure we should be talking about ones and zeros and data and where it went and who used it 
there are opinions to be made about, you know, based on the totality of evidence, do you think the person intentionally meant to do something, right? You can make, you can make um, opinions about intentionality in certain states. In certain states, you can't, depending on the law. But that's what an expert's there to do is to say that normally, so for instance, somebody has C-cleaner on their computer. Does that mean they tried to destroy and hide everything? No, it could be they just had problems with their registry and wanted to clean it up. Right. I'm in but trouble if it ex- does. Yeah. I'm right with you with that, that, Patrick. I'm in trouble too. <laughs> yeah. We well here you here. Let me give you some ideas. Sea Cleaner sold one billion dollars. They sold out for one billion dollars to Avast, and they had three hundred million customers. So that makes three hundred million people instantly guilty. <laughs> so no, that it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But unfortunately, without experts that can analyze that and put things into context. Now, if I told you somebody downloaded Sea Cleaner after they were ordered to ordered, let's say in a civil case, to preserve all data. And then the, the including the deleted data, hard drive, don't mess with it. We're going to the court's getting asked to do a forensic examination on it. And then you download CCleaner and run it. Okay, we could probably say that probably wasn't a proper thing to do, and we would probably opi- make an opinion if you did run it that it destroyed evidence that was relevant or, or um, at least interesting to the case. And that's something an expert could do. But without an expert, you can't do that. But you know, the untrained person, the the knee-jerk reaction is somebody tried to do something nefarious always. And I have a problem when we say that um, any entity has an exclusivity over a science. Well, hey, 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 Andrew, though, don't forget, but you can't talk about that because you're not court certified in that tool. <laughs> yeah, recently we we if, if we you got come to my out. class, if you come to our class, oh, the, we will ensure that you are court certified in this law enforcement only tool. Yeah, we we recently had a little spat with some people online about um, a vendor, a vendor creating a certification that says it's only available to law enforcement, and that the only way you can be an expert in this data is to be court certified through our certification, which <laughs> makes no sense whatsoever, on the tool that's not available to non-law enforcement. So that puts law enforcement in the position that they walk in and go, we can't be challenged at all ever because nobody could be qualified as an expert that stands on the other side of this room from us. But, but that shows you the state of the industry and how – they are working together, which is good, don't get me wrong, that they do work together to develop better tools. But that working together to develop better tools needs to incorporate all aspects of the science and make those tools available to all aspects of the science, at least when needed. So you don't want to give me your tool all the time? Okay. If I'm defending a client, and I'm defending them against the use of your tool, and you don't want to give it to me, I have a problem. Right. And, and law enforcement, we're not, I guess, the big ask from anybody that does work outside of law enforcement. And, and Patrick and I work on a lot of cases like crazy stuff, right? I mean, the most intense <laughs> crazy on the news, yeah. on TV. It feels mm-hmm. like every week we have a case that's on television somewhere, and it's national news. We don't blast that on the internet because for the sake of our client and our contracts don't allow us to. Um, we, uh, we both live in the same world of, of you know, sometimes you don't need to scream at the top of the hills to get attention. But we, we 
our big ask is that law enforcement that already has centers like regional computer forensic laboratories and things like that that are resources for them, that we have the ability that if they do have a tool they just don't want to release in the wild, that we can simply just drive over to an RCFL, walk in the door, and analyze the tool and the results and use the tool right there in their own facility. Yeah, they can watch me do it. But instead, it's this massive, expensive argument over whether you can get an access. I have a case right now in which they said, the DOJ tried to make an opinion that we can't even see the evidence at all. Oh, yeah. Zero. Background we check. can't do any defense whatsoever unless they background check us first, that they authorize us, that they do a Daubert hearing before a trial. That's a trial issue. <laughs> that they want to say you're not an expert in it because this 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 was created by a law enforcement tool and you can't see law enforcement tool and you can't see the results of the law enforcement tool because you're not law enforcement. Well, what kind of justice is so, that? so basically they want the defense to hire law enforcement to look at the information. <laughs> you can't. They wouldn't allow that. Law I, enforcement I will never allow you. You, yeah. They're they're saying, and even if you were former law enforcement, they say no. Right. Still doesn't even matter. Right. They don't so, care. So that's basically, the what point. they're doing, and that's what's amazing, they're they're stripping the defense's right to call an oppositional expert, and that's what's you know insane. So, Absolutely. And let me so, tell you how absurd it is. How about this? Hey, Mr. Garrett. Somebody on your team is former law enforcement. They went through the training class for this very very tool. Okay. This tool, but the class they went through was 7.11, and we're now on version 7.13, so they couldn't be an expert on 7.13. Wow. I'm not kidding. Wow. So all they have to do is change version numbers every month, and that knocks out anybody that's ever been to training prior to that that doesn't work for law enforcement. Correct. So it's interesting that you're talking about those exact tools, right? Because that, that reminds me of a presentation from, I think it was DEFCON 25 where they talked about uh, uh, secret tools. And believe it or not, of all those government secret tools and things you'd think of, what do you think they, they came up with? The same tool you were talking about right now that is used for, uh, you know, locating potential uh, CP files. And they talk about the code must remain secret. Why? Because it would divulge our database of contraband. What? <laughs> or it will disclose the undercover investigators. What? Like no such thing. No, Th these are just excuses. And, I've seen and the inner workings. Well, and I've seen the inner workings of the tools because, again, I was federal law enforcement. I used these tools. I trained people how to use those exact same tools just four or five years ago. And there's nothing, the only thing that there's really no secret. bothers them in the secret is this. When I have cases like this, and this has happened multiple times, where somebody sa says in their search warrant application, I officer ABC at 2 o'clock in the morning, directed my computer towards this IP address and downloaded these files. And to find out on his Facebook page, he was in Mexico for a week on vacation during that time. Clearly not running an operation in the state of Illinois. That is that is a what you call Frank's hearing, um, where you say that this they lied. And what it is is the tool runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and does monitoring, and then sends a text message. But there are situations where, for instance, these tools that do this kind of stuff. Let's say, for instance, back in 2007, 
the tool found an IP address that was hosting contraband, and it logged it into the tool into what they call their deconfliction databases. Then all of a sudden, you move to an apartment in 2020, and the internet service provider has canceled that old account 10 years ago and assigned you the same IP address. Guess what? You're in a law enforcement database as being a suspect. Wow. That's the problems we see with these tools and remediation of data and taking a look at these things is there are flaws and problems in this system. I think we may the have reason, lost uh, – uh, Pat, are you there? I think we lost Pat. Let me get him back. Just give we me have a to call him back. It's all right. Pat? Yeah. Yeah, I think we lost you. I'm going to bring you back in. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's all right. Okay, we're all back. <laughs> Yeah, Patrick, we were just talking about the, the flaws in the whole ecosystem sometimes get exposed by exposing the tools because these tools aren't perfect. They, they have room for error. And things like the deconfliction databases where you got an IP address from 10 years ago that gets flagged as hosting contraband, it's still in the system, and then all of a sudden you get a poor schmuck that's you know, a, 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 in an apartment and has open Wi-Fi and everybody's using his Wi-Fi. Now somebody's pinging on him saying he's downloading 10 years ago and he's downloading today contraband again, and he didn't do either one. But you right. know, these tools and it doesn't would even have to be 10 years data. ago. So, you know, a lot of times they'll go grab a case out of this database and they're using single-source downloads is what they call them from three or four months ago to go get a search warrant. And so now that data, when they got it, was three or four months old. That IP address could have been released and reused, and the verification process isn't occurring, and they're going to go serve a search warrant on somebody who has never even looked at one of those sites or has ever even downloaded a BitTorrent or something of that nature. And I think we both have to apologize a little here because we're using we're using samples of like downloading contraband and stuff like that because it's easy examples to use. Yes, right? sure. I mean, we have so sure. many other samples from a billion different types of cases that yeah. we could use, but it gets much more complex and we can't cover it in the amount of time we have to cover. But Absolutely. I think the easy stuff people can wrap their head around is contraband material being downloaded. Yeah, and that, that's what I, we try to just do, just break it down, you know, simplistic. And I, and I tell you, I think um, that's... That's what's huge about this episode and just anything along these lines. It just really enlightens enlightens those listening to see what takes place and to try to find out because, as we were saying earlier, educating oneself is the key to it. If you don't understand something, you're just not going to know what's right, what's wrong, and what's accurate. You're just going to believe whatever you know the, uh, the other side puts on. You're going to take that as fact. And when you hear all of this, even, you know, for myself, and I've been doing this for, you know, some quite some time, you guys are educating me and I'm just learning so much more about what goes into it. And it just, these are things I put in my memory bank now because when I do partner with the various attorneys and I get cases now, this is a matter of really, all right, guys, we have to talk to this expert. We got to bring this in just to, just to hear the other side, just to hear the potential of what this could be. Because when you first get that discovery, it may look... Pretty intimidating, but that's only seeing one side of it. So you always got to explore these things and really open them up and really, you know, research them. And, and I have to say this, for, for anybody that listens to this podcast, if you're an attorney and you have any reach into any judge whatsoever, send them a copy. Okay? We will be more than willing to come out at a couple judges in a room and we'll teach them everything oh, yeah. they need to know because I don't know how many... And I'm going to say it this way, and this is bad, 
but it's just the way it is. Mistakes the court has made in cases where us experts are sitting literally on the smoking gun and we can't say anything because it's outside the scope of what we were hired to do. Yep. Oh, I, I do can't anything. even get into that. We are hands tied. We are, we are there. But if just we only had five minutes to sit down and explain to the court the situation, and sometimes we're not given that, they would have probably made a decision completely contrary to what they made. But that happens. And that's, it's not a perfect system. It isn't. But we're talking about technology and making decisions around technological-based crimes or crimes that have evidence in technology is a difficult thing to sometimes understand. But we have no problem educating the court. And I, I got that opportunity recently to sit down and educate the court on a few matters involving electronic medical records and discovery of, of electronic medical records. And I had 34 cases, and 32 out of the 34 cases I found where the, um, the hospital administration, doctors, nurses, practitioners, had altered a medical record to cover up a bad act or a bad deed or a misstep. Um, and I got a chance to educate the courts on that. And they took that information, and they ran with it and started hammering down on the defense to get to the truth of the matter, and it is having monumental effects in a major city in the United States. And that has happened not only in one major city, I've done that now twice, for the same exact thing, where it's medical records being altered and showed how easy it is to alter records and how all that's part of the Code of Federal Regulations says that the records have to be produced and the audit trails have to be produced. And a lot of that stuff's on our website, the blog section. But... That is just one opportunity. If we could only get before the court and teach on some of these other things about cell phone location history, about <laughs> what are the do's and don'ts, what can you can't, what you can and what you can't do when it comes to cell phones, what, what, whether or not you could really get deleted data back or not, and how much deleted data do you expect to get back. So when the court's faced with a really expensive proposition of doing something, um, if they're only going to get back a very small return on that, do, do they make the decision to force one of the parties to pay $10,000, $5,000, $2,000, whatever it is, to do the full discovery on some computers and cell phones, or do they not? Do they say, no, it's not worth it? Those type of decisions can only be made if they're informed decisions, and we are here to inform. And I'm sure so, Patrick would agree we could – Yeah, I mean, not speech, even getting speech, into – with 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 this would be a whole nother episode, but I briefly touch on it. I mean, just getting into spoofing and and technology is unbelievable. Can you but just uh, elaborate a little on that? Patrick, I'm going this? to. Yep. So, how many courts or how many attorneys are accepting screenshots of text messages as evidence in a trial, as evidence to get search warrants, judges? But here's the thing, within five minutes and using an app, and I've done this, I can recreate the same exact text message. Absolutely. I can recreate the same exact screen from the same, from the same carrier, same signal strength. If you show me a screenshot of a text message, I can recreate it and print it to look the exact same. Or and, I can modify I mean, and it. And that's what's scary. You could do something like that on a, on a basic software like Paint. I mean, Microsoft, uh, and it's just uh, ridiculous. I can do it with an app. Yep. They make There's apps to spoof text messages now. Yep. Not just the screenshots either. Here's the crazy part. 
I can do it with phone calls. I can do it with emails. I can do it with voicemail. And now we're getting into an even scarier part is, you know, they have apps out there that allow you to train a voice to sound like someone else's voice. So I can record someone for a certain period of time and the AI software will learn their voice and speech pattern. And then I can start using that to leave voice messages, whether they're threatening, whether it's, uh, you know, being used to uh, impersonate someone. So when you start getting into deep fakes, you start getting into spoofing, you start getting into using AI technology. If you're not using experts who can identify if this stuff was used in a case, or if you're not using an expert in your case to help you understand the technology, are you actually doing your client justice? No, you're really not. No. And, and unfortunately, I witnessed it, you know, firsthand uh, on a case, you know, where it was so necessary to have an expert and it was pushed from day one. And when the time came, they didn't call it. And that w- it was devastating to the case. And it had to do with the cell site. That's why that was important to me on the last episode with Andrew. I wanted to really exploit, exploit that to really you know, explore that to really just talk about how it could be, uh, you know, uh, false, false positives. And um, to answer your question, they're just not calling experts. And that's what I'm hoping kind of changes the tie here. Because, you know, especially when I joined a defense team, you know, we, from day one, that's one of the things I kind of I kind of stress to the client, to the attorneys. I want to see who, who the opposition is going to call. And who, it's a very simplistic philosophy, the way I look at things. If they're calling an, an expert... Common sense would tell you, well, you got to call some, an expert as well because you're going to obviously have to go up against whatever they're saying, whether it's right or whether it's wrong or if it's accurate. We'll find out when the time comes. But we have to be prepared to at least have a defense for that side. You can't just have an attorney go up there and cross-examine an expert. That's not going to do it. It's just not going to get the job done. And think about this. So one, one second, Andrew. Think about this too as you're talking about that. Mobile devices are now an extension of the human being. Everybody, or almost everybody, has a smartphone. That phone contains more data than any other device you use. Now, what's interesting about that is I could never meet you, Dominic, but if I had access to your phone, I would know more about you than I would if I met you and interviewed you face-to-face. Right. I would know things on every level, personal level, public level. All of these things is in that device. And we're saying it's okay. Only one side of the bench needs to look at this evidence and present it. And we'll believe whatever they say. Let me give you a good example. I had Vladimir Putin's ex three-star general that he put in jail. He eventually got let out of jail by a guard. The CIA renditioned him to, or extradited him, whatever they want to call it, to another country, and the two children were split up. One came to the United States, was put into witness protection for a little bit. One went to Belarus. Eventually, the witness protection got lifted, you know, 10 years later, and this kid gets in trouble. Okay, I call him kid because he's 20, like 3, 24 years old, driving a, a Bentley. Okay? <laughs> Dad, sent him, Dad sent him with a substantial amount of money to the United States. Okay. Mom still lived in Russia. I'm up in I'm up in uh, Michigan, testifying in his trial, in which a girl says that he threatened to kill her 
after a lover spat went bad when she found out who he really was and she was going to out him on Twitter and he said that FSB would probably kill him if they actually figured out who he really was because he had a fake name at the time. And his name is Arsini, and he I can talk about him now because he got sentenced to prison and fled the United States on a plane. Gotcha. So he's not coming back here. That's the good, that's the one thing. And with the amount of money he had, and it was an overzealous prosecutor who was his first case. He thought it was going to be big headlines. State Department sealed up some courtrooms, that kind of stuff. And they got text messages. And the girl took screenshots, uploaded them to upload them to Google Drive, and then shared them with law enforcement out of the Google Drive, and they never analyzed her phone. Screenshot. Wow. I can go to Google, I can go on Google, search fake iPhone text, and find 11 websites. I know this because we did this in samples, and I could build as many screenshots as they want. And hers just happened to be one pixel off from what it should have been on two of them. But the court was willing to accept her screenshots as actual, true, authentic. Oh, it happens every day. And it drives you nuts because if that's the standard, I could put a lot of people in prison really quick. What drives me nuts is not only the court for that purpose, judges are accepting screenshots for search warrants. Yep. I mean, what's scary about what? all that is after that plays out, you know, and then unfortunately, if things go bad for the defense, now, you know, the the client has to revisit all these things that they already tried to prevent during trial. They got to try to revisit all these things on appeal and then go for it again, try to get an expert at that level. I mean, I'm dealing with a case now with Andrew where it's on an appeal level and it had to do with the transcript that uh, we did. And, and, you know, during the trial, we were actually telling uh, you know, the defense was telling that the transcript was not accurate, and they let it in anyway. So now, you know, the trial didn't turn out the way we'd want it to. Now we have to revisit the same thing when we actually gave them a heads up to let them know we enhanced it. It's not saying what they're trying to say it's saying, and yet it was admitted anyway as if it was, and now we have to reprove what we already addressed. Happens every day. And I couldn't why. imagine ever being allowed to be on a grand jury where they're trying to get indictments for something that involves digital evidence. <laughs> no, no, they wouldn't not. pick you. We they would. wouldn't pick you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think um, I've been told now that I'm on a list of not old. <laughs> so uh, permanently. Uh, and, probably uh, I, I get why. I'm pretty so, sure now. You know, hey, here's kind of the bottom line. Nobody, absolutely nobody, regardless of who you work for, has exclusivity over science. We work in the world of science, and our industry needs to get back to that. We need to all work together to perfect the science instead of building walls up and saying, we're the only ones that can do this, and you can't, we, you can't see the data because we don't want our science that they created being challenged. Yeah. So, and that goes both ways. If I was to create a tool that is non-law enforcement, like, law enforcement can't have it. It's only different defense experts. My, when I go to court, I'm going to be daubered in five seconds. It ha and it says, Federal Rules of Evidence 702 says it has to be accepted by the scientific, word scientific, community. When did law enforcement become the scientific community? They Wait, didn't, didn't Apple just do that and you see what they're going through? Yep. That's the, the, the problem is, is you can't just take one community law enforcement only, and that qualify as the scientific community. So I can tell you, 
from the, even the vendors that say they have law enforcement only software. Their very own employees, I've spoke to them, they all agree they're off base, but they're doing it because they've been held hostage by the by the people that had the most amount of money. There you go. Law enforcement from the DOD, and it has to do with money and funding, but it is a horrible way to go about it. So what are we doing about it, Patrick? Tell them, tell, tell, like, you and I, tell them, like, We've we've discussed this before and what we're doing in cases and for and asking the court to do certain things. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm asking one either I want access to that that same tool and same data set, or I'm asking that they exclude it. They exclude the use of it. They exclude the reports that came from it. And don't always win those battles, but at least it's on the record that it occurred. So when the appeal comes, they listen a little bit better during appeals than they do during the initial trial. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, because, you know, you're talking final justice at that point. And so when we're explaining to them that we asked for this and we're being told no, and we make this big scientific explanation about why and why it's not a big secret and why there, there's nothing that states any law anywhere that states that this tool is restricted. There is no government, like there are some government tools that are restricted to government only and they're classified. There's no government classification on these tools. There's none of that. And so for them to hide behind it, why? That's the question that really comes out. Why are you hiding behind it? Is it because the tool actually has imperfections? Yeah, I think there's a lot of elements to that. You know, that's where it goes back to what we were touching on earlier. There's that side of it. There's the money side, the control aspect of it. There's the vendetta aspect of it. And, you know, there's a target aspect of it. And that's the problem. It's, it, it shouldn't be. All of those things should not exist in the science world. You know, it, it's different if the prosecution wants to have vendetta. Whatever. Okay, if that's just the way they operate, I don't agree with it. It's unethical. But if that's the way they operate, when the science aspect gets involved, none of that should exist. It really shouldn't. And that's 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 the I agree. problem, you know. That's the yep. problem. It, it and the problem is it does exist, and that's the problem. That's and you know I, I think we actually did a lot of good today. I, I mean I've been getting a lot of feedback, a lot of emails, a lot of heavy hitters in the defense uh, world have been telling me that the it's been enlightening. The the episodes are getting very informative, and if nothing else, I just as as a litigation support firm, I want people to know. You need that side. You need the expert side to build your defense. You, you just, it's something that's a necessity. You know, it's just something that's needed. It's, it's a tool that's needed in your toolbox. Can I, can I say one more thing on that too? Because I agree. You do need the experts. And what I, I will tell defense attorneys is this as well. Interview your experts. Make sure they actually have the capability, tools, and knowledge to provide you with what you need and what you're asking for instead of just blindly hiring them because they're the cheapest price or because you heard they were good or whatever it may be because every case is different. And if your defense attorney has used digital forensic experts in the past and you end up with a bad one, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, excellent point, Patrick. Absolutely. I've got a rule of thumb. If you're 
if you're hiring an expert based on price, you're probably going to fail. Yeah. I have a similar a similar philosophy with my uh, with my firm. If it's if it's down to price, I'm not the one you want because uh, you know we just do whatever's necessary to get the job done. You want to make sure that who you have on your team is going to really go forward and make sure they research and they do what's needed to support that team. And and outside the, the box, yeah. outside the box, inside the law, but outside the box. That's right. Absolutely. That's what I call we it. Get, we, and Patrick and I, we get calls all the time where somebody calls us and they go, hey, I want to do A, B, C, D, E, F, right? And we look at them and we go, you don't want to do anything but A. <laughs> you nope. don't because, honestly, none of that's going to help your case. And we will help guide them because I would say once you've had about a decade in this industry, you become a strategist, right? You, you, can, see, you can see through the forest to the other side and say, you know what, Mr. Defense Attorney – Loved enthusiasm, but to be honest, I've seen people do this before and it hasn't worked out very well for them, and here's why. And you can explain that to them and why they're going to throw a lot of good money off the end of the pier. Right. And you want to keep them from doing that. You, you advise them and you tell them. And then also you have an arsenal. We've got arsenals of motions and pleadings and, and discovery motions that you can pull out and say, you don't have to write all this stuff. We've already That's done right. this in another case. And heck, you tell me what judge it is and what jurisdiction, we may be able to give you something that that very judge already approved. Yep. And then you can just pull it out, replicate it, use it, and then you can tell the, remind the judge they've approved this before. Because a lot of what we do, a lot of judges don't get to see very often, and they think it's uncharted territory. And they feel a little uncomfortable writing certain orders because they've never <laughs> seen it done before. I just All had that happen. Do is Remind them or show them that this is standard practice somewhere else in a very in another court that sees a lot more technology crime cases, and you could do that. They they tend to jump on it. And what's really good is when you can pull out of your back pocket the very internal policies at the DOJ, where the DOJ is saying they can't do something, and then you're saying your policy is to do it, and you pull out their policies because you've got it in another case, and it's in your in your filing cabinet. It's in your arsenal, and that is worth the, your weight in gold because when somebody calls us and they say, hey, we want you to advise on this case, sometimes we're only billing them for three hours and we're done right? because everything we've given them put them so far down the football field, they're ready to spike that ball at the end zone. Well, even they're, us, they're, Andrew, they're with right. some of the uh, cases we worked with, there was a lot of times where it was just a matter of that. You just checking it out, giving direction, well, and then I was able to, you know, uh, advise uh, the counsel on that. You know, and you got to remember, it's not always the the be all to end all, right? So we are also there, and what we do can be used as bargaining and leverage, right? And so I I had a case recently with that where it was involved the Store Communications Act and Facebook messages. And in this case, the attorney, the prosecution, was trying to claim that the client uh, violated uh, the Stored Communications Act by accessing Facebook messages on someone else's device. What's interesting about that is I took the same device, placed it on airplane mode, and showed how you can still get into Facebook and Facebook Messenger, and view all the messages, thereby you are no longer accessing the facility that they call, because that's what the law calls it, a facility. You're no longer accessing Facebook's server to access those messages, but yet you can still read them all. Matter of fact, as a little trick, if the people didn't know this, 
you can actually, if you get an incoming Facebook message, put your phone in airplane mode, go view the message, close it, go back out, turn off airplane mode. It's like you never even looked at the message. Mm -hmm. So it's just about understanding, like, there's lots of reasons to use us, and it's not always going to be, we want you to testify in court. If it comes to that, we're ready to do that. Right. It's really just, it's honestly just understanding. It's just getting a grasp of the information, and that's that's really what it boils down to. As a defense team, you just want a grasp of the actual information, and can it help you, and can it not help you? And someone like me, I love the courtroom. So that's the thing for me. Right. I, I actually like testifying. I like being in the courtroom. Not a lot of experts do. They 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 want to get to that point where it's being there's a deal or you know there's a settlement. Sure. I actually enjoy testifying because it's educational. Yep. I'm educating the attorneys. I'm educating a jury. I'm educating the gallery and the judge, all on the record. I'm getting what I am saying on the record out there has that education so that others can go research that and find it. Yeah. I, I love, I love testifying too. And it's so funny to see uh, uh, some of our colleagues in the industry that have been doing this for, you know, a decade or so. And they, they have in their CV, they have, you know, a hundred cases and they've testified twice. Huh. And yeah. they're like, how did you only testify twice? And, and it isn't, it isn't a testament of how great their reports are. Right. I mean, that's, that's not it. It's because they really just don't want to testify, and they tell their clients that. So sometimes they get used as like the scare tactic, like let's let's drag this trial out. I'm going to have my expert come in and show your experts how much they don't know kind of deal. And those things happen, and um, most of the time, we're not part of those conversations. We have no idea they're happening right. until we show up at trial, and the prosecutor looks at us with dagger eyes like he wants to kill us. <laughs> And we have no idea why. <laughs> we had no idea for the last six months they've been throwing darts at each other. Yep. But but what's really interesting is, um, you know, just just getting to the truth of stuff can sometimes change the outcome of a case without even having to go to trial. But at the end of the day, um, your expert, vet them, ask the right questions. If you don't know the right questions to ask, Go hire another expert to interview your experts. Yeah. You could do that. Just to do we that. We do all the time. And we get asked to come in, and sometimes an expert writes an opinion, and then we get called, asked to vet the opinion of somebody else just to look at it to make sure mm-hmm. it's sound and proper and critique it. We have no problem doing that. Potentially Any do that for each other by recommendation. Yep. Peer review. Peer review is a big problem in law Absolutely. And, and it doesn't have to be in this industry. We all can be friends with each other. We can all get along. We can all help each other, help each other along. And that's how Patrick and I met a while back. We met and we just knew that we could help each other out. We're like, hey, we're great. You know, we've been doing this so long. We have a different view of the industry. We're not holding our cards close to the chest. We're willing to help anybody out that wants to do this. Mm-hmm. We're helping mentor people. We take interns in. We do all the right things in the industry. Well, and, but and two brains we, are we better work than in science. Yeah, absolutely. We work in science. We don't care about the personalities, the arguments between mm-hmm. prosecution and defense and all that stuff that doesn't make a difference to us. We want to get facts. down to the science and facts, and that's all we care about. Now, is one of our clients, is somebody paying us, paying us to do all this? Yes, they are. Do they want results? Yes. But I tell you what, it's a pretty rare occurrence that the actual real ultimate client that's not the attorney actually has a conversation with us. 
Yeah, I don't talk to you. Don't talk to your clients ever. The only times mm-hmm. I've had to talk to my client once in a while is because the attorney I'm working with can't put something to the contacts as well as the client because the client is uber technical client yep. and they understand things at a level most people don't. Right. Or it's like a computer fraud and abuse act case and your client's a computer hacker and the poor attorney doesn't have a clue what he's talking right. about and he's talking about smashing into servers worldwide, right? So interview your experts, ask the right questions, get involved heavily. And you don't have to have a big bill. A lot of times people are scared. They think you're going to get this huge yeah. bill, and they're completely wrong. I just had a case in Chicago. <laughs> My competitors bid $285,000. We did it for fifteen grand. The same work. <laughs> yep. Yes, absolutely. You have the big boy tools, and you spend the money, and well, you actually have a lab with competent staff. You can do things a lot quicker than everybody else. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you, you streamline your processes. And you, you have the ability to say, and that's the thing, like, even for me, like, we don't, we don't. I think we lost Patrick. Oops, we lose? Oh, we lost Patrick. But yeah. basically, <laughs> to summarize, we are only one tool in the litigation tool bag, but we're a very sharp tool if you pull us out at the right time. But we are not the solution to everything. And a seasoned expert will tell you exactly that. He will tell you everything you want. I necessarily can't deliver on all those. Right, And they'll tell you who to go to, who to contact, a lot of friends in the industry, whether it's blood, DNA, handwriting analysis, anything. A lot of us have worked with other experts before in the past, and we could easily do a referral over. And send well, even our firms, uh, Andrew, when I uh, contacted you, if it wasn't something directly, you were always able to point me in the right direction. So, uh, you know, that's always uh, appreciative. There's always a way of finding who who's needed for a specific case, you know? And that's... Yeah, it's... That's the, We're that's all professionals really... in this industry, and if you find somebody that's not talking the same as us, then I would definitely question their. their I agree. Professionalism, <laughs> because uh, oh, there's I mean, there's Patrick. Let trying. me get him back in. Let me get him back in yeah, for the but... final. <laughs> we lost you. Jeez, I don't know why the calls keep dropping. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let me. Uh... I'm sure we're almost done anyway. Yeah, we're. Uh... I'm trying to merge in. Uh, are you there, Andrew? Let me see. Andrew, you there? Hey, I'm I'm here with you. Sounds like uh, Patrick, Patrick. Are you here? Too bad. No, I can't. Oh no! Yeah, Maybe he's... he's talking too bad. Too bad about the DOJ. Yeah, something's going on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love my friends at the DOJ. Actually, I mean, we actually have a really good working relationship with some senior staff at the DOJ, and I love the work that they do. I appreciate everything they do and stuff. It's just I got to give some people a hard time because they are. There's a few out there that are setting a precedent that can't be right. It can't be set. Yep. Got to change. Yep, Got to change, or, or this is not going to be a science anymore. It's yep. going to be all biased. No, I, I agree. Well, I, I would like to say goodbye to Patrick, but I guess, uh, I don't know. I guess we lost him. <laughs> it's all right. Yep. We'll say bye. Hey, yep. Patrick, if you listen to this someday, another day. Uh, thank no, you I appreciate you calling in again. You know, yeah, and Andrew, thank you for calling in again. I mean, it was another great episode. Thank Patrick for me. I'll, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. These things could only help. And, you know, we just keep educating. That's all we can really do on this level. Yep. And Patrick, I'm, I'm going to get he's not on the phone. I'll do his shameless plug. So it's Patrick Eller with Metadata Forensics. And I am Andrew Garrett with Garrett Discovery, Inc. Um, you can go to metadataforensics.com or garrettdiscovery.com. You can read more. Um, we have lots of blog articles on there talking about different different issues in criminal defense cases. Um, feel free to contact us anytime or contact Dominic. Dominic can definitely get a hold of us and we'll help anybody out, even if you're not hiring us. If you got a question, call us. 
We'll give you every bit of information we can to help you out and arm you up in your case. Absolutely. And also their contact information will be on the banners uh, throughout this podcast. So it will be coming up. So if you ever got to get a hold of them, you'll, you'll also see their contact information. But, um, again, thank you very much, uh, Andrew, and thank Patrick for me. And uh, I'll speak with you soon. Dom, you're a great man. Appreciate all that you do. Thank you. Uh, thank Have you. Have a great day. Bye. All right, so that was a, a very uh, informative discussion. It was a great episode. Um, I think uh, we learned a lot. I'm actually going to see if I could just get Patrick back on just to bid him farewell and thank him for his time. Hello? Patrick, I actually just dropped. Um, Andrew got off. We couldn't get you back in, but I wanted to call you directly and thank you for your time. And oh, his... Andrew's calling me right now. All right. <laughs> well, don't pick him up yet. Let me just, uh, I wanted to just thank you. And it was a great episode. And um, if there's anything you want to give, I'm also going to have ban- banners uh, during this podcast that where the, uh, you know, viewers could look and it's going to have your information. But if you, oh, the, best, the awesome. best way to contact you is what, uh, Patrick? Uh, right through the my website at uh, metadataforensics.com okay. or to give us a call, uh, 866-382-3282. Great. And uh, we'll be in touch. I'm sure we'll be doing some future episodes, and I, I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you, Dominic. Th- thank you, Patrick. That's great. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I think, uh, again, I th- thought this was a very successful episode. It was, even for myself, I learned a lot. And I'm hoping the uh, the audience did as well. And you know, share this share this um, podcast. Be sure you subscribe to it uh, because we're just going to keep building on it, keep enhancing the knowledge. I want the public to realize these things. I want defense attorneys to realize these things. It can only help. It can only help the cases. Only make things stronger. So this is Ju- Justice Tech Pros. Until next time. Thank you.